morning and welcome to Rising. We have a stupendous show for you today. Rihanna, what do we have? Well, we'll have a panel discussion over California's recall of San Francisco's district attorney. Plus, Richard Hania joins us to discuss masking requirements, and Evan Greer digs into some of the antitrust legislation lawmakers are racing to pass. But first, yesterday we learned that a 26-year-old man took a taxi to Justice Brett Kavanaugh's Maryland home where he was arrested in the early morning uh, for threatening to kill Kavanaugh and was taken into custody. There's a lot of details to go over, so here's what we know. Nicholas John Roski, that's the suspect, told police he was angry over the leaked opinion uh, on Roe v. Wade and also the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The DOJ reports, report states that he got out of his car at 1.05 a.m., I think it was a taxi cab, where he then saw U.S. Marshals and then turned to walk down the street. Shortly after the Montgomery County Emergency Comm Center fielded a call he made where he expressed suicidal thoughts and had a firearm in his suitcase, he said he came from California specifically to kill Kavanaugh. Mm. An inventory search found a Glock 17 pistol, two magazines and ammunition, pepper spray, zip ties, a hammer, screwdriver, nail punch, crowbar, pistol light, hiking boots with padding on the outside soles, and other items, according to the FBI. Though it's unclear how he obtained these weapons if he traveled across the country. Uh, Roski told police he was thinking about how to give his life purpose. And he decided he would kill Kavanaugh after finding the justice's address online. Pro-abortion group Ruth sent us, who had posted a map on their website showing the apparent addresses of the six conservative justices on the bench following the leaked opinion, scoffed at the news, saying, we are committed to nonviolence, adding, oh, what was this weapon the California man had? If it was a gun or even a knife, police would say so. Well, it was clearly a gun, so... Yeah, and the, and the <laughs> police have said so. You know, do you think a lot, of these, a lot of public figures have addresses online and groups post them with the goal of protesting them? Certainly, many um, anti-abortion rights groups post the locations of abortion centers and the right for people to protest in front of those centers has been protected for a long time now. You know, does is it fair to put the onus for this person's attempted murder on groups like this abortion group that might have posted the address. No, I don't think so. Absolutely not. People are responsible for their own individual decisions. This is no one's fault but this person. Mm. And uh, that is the standard I would apply in all of these cases. But, you know, look, the issue is that when this happens because of conservative rhetoric, we get a whole national freak out about sometimes free speech itself is impugned. Uh, you know, the Sarah Palin, Jared Lee Loeffner thing, uh, the, the Tucson shooting, that kind yeah. of thing seems to happen every time you can, you, there's some indirect or, or maybe somewhat direct connection to angry conservative rhetoric. And I don't, I don't know that that association is, is made as much when it goes the other way, like at the baseball shooting, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, again, clearly done by a, a left-wing person. But look, these are all unhinged people. So this is an unhinged person thinking about committing suicide and then connects it to a kind of political ideology. And this is the this is why I, I actually urge us not to um, get too obsessed with political ideology when we're looking for it as sources of violence, because there there are crazy people who self-harm or harm others. And it, it very infrequently can you actually really 
connected to some kind of political ideology. And yet, in the Buffalo shooter case, he was very specific about his ideology. He but this, said, I mean, he this was, guy's being specific too. He said he was going to go kill black people. He wrote, here's your reparations on his gun. He specifically Googled a neighborhood where there were large amounts of black people and drove far out of his way and away from his own community to find them and kill them. And so I do think that there are times when it's not accurate to point to a specific ideology and there are times where it is and it is frustrating I think to some folks that even in an example like Buffalo where someone was so explicitly white supremacist to self-described as a white supremacist there is this hesitation to describe him as such but back to your earlier point I'm curious whether you think there's any difference at all or if there's a gradient at all in terms of responsibility when folks do do things like not just post an address but say put a target on um, Gabrielle Giffords' head. That was one of the accusations, I don't think it was, right? it wasn't a target on her, no, it was not a target on her head. It was a target over her district. It was okay. not a target over her face. Okay. Um, it was just over her district, uh, you know, using very, you know, you can think whatever you think about mm -hmm. it, but common kind of political uh, 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 parlance for, you know, getting people out of, you know, taking them out, putting target signs mm -hmm. on things. I. And, and by the way, there is no evidence, and this has now been litigated, right? The New York Times got sued over it. But he, there's no reason to think Loeffner, the shooter in the, the Gabrielle Giffords incident, saw that map or was inspired by it mm -hmm. or was even, like, really particularly conservative. He was a lunatic mm -hmm. uh, with some really weird beliefs. He seemed to almost have a more personal grudge against her. Um, it was not, but the, how that immediately became a stand-in for kind of right-wing violence was very, it was very bizarre and did not fit the case whatsoever. That's um, fair there, are, there, are, there are closer cases, one, one of them being the baseball shooting, where the person was a very clearly a, a like anti-Trump, um, you know, far-left person. And again, but I don't the, blame far-left people but for the, that. The but. question I'm asking is, the baseball is not actually a good example because there's not any evidence that any points anybody points to there that Bernie Sanders or any other leftist said anything that would tell people to go and target even in vague political terms target he doesn't use that language at all um, so I'm asking whether there is a spectrum that where you would say that a politician does start to bear some responsibility even if we haven't seen it so far. No, people people who do bad things are responsible for their own actions is how I would, would Do you say think it. this incident is going to make people, even conservatives, think differently about the danger of guns? Well, I mean, <laughs> guns can be dangerous in the wrong hands, right? That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about. What are the right policies to keep guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them? So we need to learn, you know, how he got this gun or, or you know, what the situation is there. Again, he's not an 18-year-old. He's a 26-year-old. Yeah, some people have pointed out that it is historically true that when people on the left, and particularly when black people have demonstrated their open carry rights, that's when we got some of the strictest gun laws in the country. So California has some of the strict, strictest gun laws because of Black Panthers choosing to exercise their Second Amendment right to open carry on the um, federal steps back in the 1960s. And consequently, almost immediately, we got the kind of gun reform that the left has been fighting for for years. So I'm curious. <laughs> well, I, but I oppose all that. I don't want to disarm the Black Panthers. I, just curious. like anybody else, they should be able to lawfully carry. Well, I'm curious to see whether guns are uh, employed in this way, but increasingly by people who don't share the p political ideology, the people who have historically been the most um, vocal defenders of the Second Amendment rights will change the dynamic of the conversation at all. Well, in light of Kavanaugh's uh, this potential uh, attempt to uh, take his life, Senator Mitch McConnell has called on Congress to pass legislation that protects the justices. Let's watch. This is exactly, 
exactly why the Senate passed legislation very shortly after the leak to enhance the police protection for justices and their families. This is common sense, non-controversial legislation that passed in this chamber, in this chamber, unanimously. But House Democrats have spent weeks blocking, blocking the measure that passed here unanimously related to security for Supreme Court justices. The House's Democrats have refused to take it up. Now look, Mr. President, that needs to change, and it needs to change right now. Right now. House Democrats must pass this bill, and they need to do it today. No more fiddling around with this. They need to pass it today. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I, I don't know what the appropriate level of security is for a Supreme Court justice's house, but I'm, it, it very well could be the case that they need more security than they have. I mean, you should be able to protest at, you know, in the neighborhood somewhere nearby, of course, but they, they, do need, they do need security. I mean, really, if you think about it, and it's, it's kind of it's dark to think about it, but we, we could have seen more. We ha could have seen more attacks on Supreme Court justices' lives in, in the future. Given the structure of our government, this is by far those specific individuals, those nine individuals are the most, I mean, if you're a deranged gunman and want to significantly impact the trajectory of the country, its policies, you would target a Supreme Court justice because the well, president is just replaced by the vice president. Most of the, the congressmen are, would be reappointed by, or the next person would be appointed by a member of the political party. The Supreme Court justices who serve for life and make a lot of policy and it's, it, you know, it's getting less and less evenly split, but it's pretty evenly split some of the time. Uh, if you're being tactical about this, that, that is a, that is a, a, a very high point of influence if you were well, to well, kill a Supreme Court justice. So that's something we need to look out for. Regrettably, judges do get attacked in these kinds no, of I know they do, all right. the time. And, you know, there are, um, you know, uh, ramped up sentencing guidelines so that there are, it's, a, it's a higher penalty for killing a, a federal judge than other people than the same way there's hate crime legislation to try to protect and dissuade people who, um, from attacking groups that ha have a target on their back for other reasons, because they're historically marginalized. But the Supreme Court has these lifetime But I would argue that actually uh, federal judges and judges that take on more criminal cases are more often the target because they are the ones well, that are targeted by, by mafia yeah, and the yeah. kinds of trial work that they do, um, and they do have protections. Now, again, there's a question about whether or not the Supreme Court has sufficient protection. The fact that this man was caught and wasn't able to do harm, it doesn't seem to have come especially close to doing Justice Kavanaugh any, any harm, suggests that the measures that are in place are adequate, although that's for experts to decide, and I right. certainly don't have any ideological opposition to the idea of people getting the protection they need. Now, certain other people, when we were having these conversations about government funding to bolster protection or support to other kinds of people in need and vulnerability, would say, okay, it's on you. If you feel like you need additional protection above and beyond, you should use your personal money. You should use your personal resources. We're going to do a libertarianism, and we're going to wow. ask people to lean on their own resources to hire more staff and more guard and more protection if they want. Certainly, any number of very famous people have close protection. I don't know if you watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians, but they often make reference to the cost of having to fly their people back and forth on a, on a private jet. Okay, that well, is the what Kardashians it is. can pay for their own uh, protection. I, I don't... <laughs> 
And I guess we've reached the limits of my libertarians. I am my libertarianism. I am fine having some publicly funded defense for the nine most important people in the country, there, government employees in the country. And there is, but that's not the question. The question is whether or not it should go above and beyond what has been historically precedented and which was successfully able to stop this man last night. I mean, this, the Supreme Court is more important than it's ever. It's, it's, it's re their relative influence and power of those nine people has increased over time as, they, as the Supreme Court takes on a greater legislative function, it be, being it is the only branch of our government that kind of can kind of function in the yes, climate, the, the which I know what you don't like. The activist Supreme Court has been taking over a greater legislative right. function, and that's something that we should continue to talk about on the show, and whether that is... Sure, a, but I'm saying that might make democracy. them more attractive targets than they would have been previously, is what I'm saying. Uh, Glenn Greenwald has taken aim at the media's coverage of the incident, saying the FBI was clear that Brett Kavanaugh would be, his would-be murderer was acting to advance liberal dogma about Roe and gun control. So, of course, it's getting little attention. Over on CNN, they tried to deny the man had a weapon at all. Uh, very little detail at this point, Kate, other than to say uh, it's an, uh, this man is, uh, he's an adult man from California. We don't yet know what the nature of the threat was. We don't know what language the threat was uh, or what kind of weapon this man might have had, uh, if he had one at all, uh, because the information at this point uh, is just so thin. But Kate, this, this certainly contributes to this overall threat landscape we've been talking a lot about. The major concern here with this abortion ruling from federal officials, and they've been sounding the alarm, alarm on this for about a month, is that Supreme Court justices will certainly be, you know, potentially targeted by violent extremists who are angered over this pending ruling that is poised to strike down Roe v. Wade. This is an extremely passionate issue. There are emotions on both sides. Mm. Well, you know, Supreme Court police funding is included in the salaries and expenses total for the Supreme Court in 2022. $98.3 million were allocated for the salaries and expenses account. $107.2 million has been requested for 2023. I am hopeful that that amount of money is able to... Look, I'm not saying you're wrong. Maybe what they're spending right now is perfectly protection. sufficient. You're right. He didn't, he didn't come close. It's... Great. That's fine. That could be the case. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not and saying I, it's the most important issue. And I don't want more harm funding, to befall, but, physical yeah. harm to befall Kavanaugh or any of the other justices. Um, you know, whether or not CNN and the other liberal media have been downplaying this, it's not clear to me, even from that clip, because as we saw in the Uvalde coverage, you know, day one, we were not privy right. to any of the information, a small fraction of the, but a small fraction of the information that we ultimately became privy to. So I don't know to what extent people are just waiting for the drips and drabs to come out. Um, but it, you know, look, we have a bifurcated media sphere where people emphasize the things that they think are most important. Right. I saw little to no coverage of the fact that the Supreme Court held yesterday uh, that Border Patrol agents can violate your Fourth Amendment rights and you have no recourse is what we'll be talking about in my radar a little bit later. And it's not surprising to me that liberal channels might emphasize other news stories, whether it's uh, unionizing Starbucks workers, whether it's um, you know, concern about pocketbook issues with people facing inflation yeah. and an ability to defeat themselves. There's a lot of news in the world, fortunately or unfortunately, mu much of it bad, and people are going to prioritize things differently. I did want to, and, and we got to go, I did want to quickly, though, play that Chuck Schumer uh, clip we have uh, because I wanted to make a point about it. Can we, can we roll that? And they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you 
go forward with these awful decisions. Right. So there was a lot of blame coming from the right at saying that that's the kind of like, you know, rhetoric sicking this yeah, person he's, against he's a regular it. joker. I, again, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> that is not if some insane person responding to that or whatever goes and does something violent or crazy. That is not Chuck Schumer's fault. This is the casual um, associations with with speech and violence that people are making all the time that I utterly, totally reject. That is normal political rhetoric. It, it is not at all responsible for what happened. It is insane to pretend otherwise. And the right should call out the left when they make those kinds of associations rather than the first time there's even a slight opportunity for them to do so, um, give in to the temptation to, to do the very thing they have decried when the other side does it. So, yeah. Well, well, I look forward to hearing what's on your radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, as you know, the Fourth Amendment to our Constitution is one of our most sacred protections. It safeguards us from intrusions by the state into our homes and our personal spaces. The protection against unreasonable search and seizures is what prevents police from barging into our homes without warning to rifle through our closets and drawers. It keeps federal agents from rounding up citizens and searching our pockets and reading our journals. It was designed in response to intrusions by the British government into the homes of early Americans and is now the foundation of so many principles we hold dear. The requirement for police officers to request a warrant before entry, the expectation of privacy in the home, and the need for probable cause before arrest. But yesterday, a 6-3 conservative majority of the Supreme Court decided that they knew better than the founding fathers. Overturning Supreme Court precedent set in a case called Bivens v. Six, the Supreme Court yesterday held that Border Patrol agents who violate the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution have total immunity under the law. Here's what happened. The plaintiff in yesterday's case, Egbert, Egbert v. Bull, operated a bed and breakfast along the border between Washington State and Canada. When the plaintiff welcomed a guest visiting from Turkey who was lawfully present in the United States, the guest was confronted by a border control agent who refused to leave after the plaintiff owner asked him to. The border control agent then assaulted the bed and breakfast owner and pushed him to the ground. Plaintiff brought an excessive force claim alleging his Fourth Amendment rights had been violated, and one might have expected him to succeed given prior Supreme Court precedent from the earlier case Bivens. In Bivens, Federal Bureau of Narcotics agents entered that plaintiff's house unlawfully and used constitutionally unreasonable force to arrest him. The court determined that the plaintiff could sue the officer who used excessive force for damages. But the inn owner in yesterday's decision was not so lucky. The court has now held that Border Patrol agents have total immunity from Bivens suits and cannot be sued for constitutional violations. You heard that right. Border Patrol agents have the right to violate your constitutional rights and you are not allowed to sue them for damages. Some legal experts fear that this holding can plausibly be read to bar all Fourth Amendment lawsuits against federal officers. That means they can barge into your home, assault your spouse or children, destroy your property, and your legal recourse against those soldiers, I mean, agents, is nothing. And if you think that won't affect you because you don't live on the border, think again. 
Do you live in New York, Chicago, Seattle, Houston, San Diego, Richmond, Charleston, New Orleans, Cleveland, Buffalo, DC? Do you live in the entire state of Florida? Well, 60% of the American population lives within 100 miles of the US border, which means they live within Border Patrol Authority. That's 60% of the population that has lost any constitutional protections against warrantless assault or home invasion by armed agents. As lawyer and journalist Christian Farias put it, the border is now a constitution-free zone. While conservative pundits and politicians are working overtime to make voters afraid of trans women and surgical masks, they're taking a sledgehammer to foundational constitutional rights. While some conservatives worry about whether background checks or red flag laws mean the end of American freedom, they are completely ignoring this fundamental assault on our most basic protections against intrusions from the state. And it's worth asking why. Early American politician James Otis, the taxation without representation as tyranny guy, he also famously said that one of the most essential freedoms is that a man's house is his castle. And whilst he is quiet, he is as well-guarded as a prince in his castle. Well, Clarence Thomas and five other activist conservative justices feel differently. At the same time, conservative lawmakers are pushing for government spending to protect Justice Kavanaugh and his home. Justice Kavanaugh is working overtime to give impunity to lawmakers who would enter your house and assault you and your family. So much for the land of the free. Now, Robbie, I was very concerned to see this holding, but even more concerned to see how disproportionately it seemed that liberals were concerned about this. And I heard nary a peep about this pretty significant constitutional violation of one of the bills of rights on uh, conservative Twitter. I don't know. Did you see something about this? Am I, am I biased in my perception because of my, my Internet bubble that I live in? No, I mean, what do you want me to say? I completely agree with you. I agree with your analysis. Uh, I was ve- beyond disturbed. Uh, so were my colleagues at Reason. You know, we're crazy libertarians, so we tend to agree on this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I, the, when law enforcement uh, violates people's rights, first, they shouldn't violate people's rights, and then when they do wrongly violate people's rights, they should be held accountable. They should yeah. be held structurally accountable and individually accountable, uh, especially in egregious cases. The tremendous protections we are giving law enforcement across the board are bad for society. They are bad for accountability. I, I try to, so I try to get conservatives out of the knee-jerk, we, we got to, you know, back the blue kind of men- mentality. Think, okay, if these were teachers and they were abusing your children mm-hmm. or, or just not teaching your children mm-hmm. or, you know, getting school canceled for the 80th thousandth time because of the pandemic or whatever, you would be fed up. You are fed up. If the curriculum, you're fed up about the curriculum, you're at school board meetings, these are employees of the government just like any other the police are. So why why this extraordinary deference to them in all circumstances and this codification of laws that make them that make the, the people who do genuine harm not accountable to the citizens they work for us we don't work for them they work for us so it's it's uh, and 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 many conservatives do get that, but you're right. I didn't see a lot of outrage about that. I didn't see a lot about online. that. And look, it's not just because they're employees of the government. I talked about this in my radar yesterday, that all over the place where it comes to elites getting their way, protection of elite mm-hmm. property, which is a, what a lot of this is about, over and over again, it's 
qualified immunity yeah. for me, but not for thee, whether it comes down to vaccines, whether it comes down to uh, uh, gun manufacturers, when there's money and lobbying efforts behind it, they can change the laws to make sure that they don't play this by the same rules as everybody else. And now we're seeing it at the highest level with some of these right. federal agents that have the broadest authority to affect your lives. This is something the founding fathers really anticipated. We all learned in grade school about uh, British soldiers quartering in American right. houses and how disruptive that was. The Third Amendment, the, the only one that's right. mostly been uh, <laughs> mostly not been violated. Although there have been a couple cases. For now, but yeah. people are concerned about yeah. what this if it, this is the the candles, uh, the camel's nose under the proverbial tent. So we will see, and I look forward to seeing, I hope, um, some bipartisan solidarity and pushing back against these kinds of overreaches. Yeah, it's, uh, it is it is terrifying. It, it's not, it's hypocritical. It's not consistent. And there used to be more, I mean, there's still some, but there used to be more enthusiasm for, I think, limiting police power, even on the right, maybe 10 years ago. But it's just now, you know, everything is so tribal, so one side or the other. And um, uh, scrutiny of the police is just a is a team blue value. It's, it's when I share um, and there should be more of it on the right as well. Well, we'll have more rising next. Chesa Boudin was ousted as San Francisco's district attorney on Tuesday in a recall effort that argued his reforms to the city were too lenient and made the city less safe. According to the latest figures from city elections officials, around 60% of San Franciscans who cast ballots voted to recall him. This comes as progressives see multiple losses in several key races, including Los Angeles mayoral race, where tough-on-crime Rick Caruso, a Republican-turned-Democrat, will face Representative Karen Bass in a runoff election. And in Texas, Representative Henry Cuellar, who is considered the most conservative Democrat in the House, he has defeated activist and attorney Jessica Cisneros by fewer than 300 votes in Texas's 28th con congressional district runoff. Here to discuss with us is public defender and commentator Olaimi Olerin and civil rights and defense attorney Michael Block. Welcome to you both. Good morning, y'all. Okay, so the question that a lot of people have is, is this uh, election result with Chesa, uh, the progressive DA that people really heralded uh, when he was elected a few years ago, is, has San Francisco markedly turned to the right since he was elect, uh, elected, or is this representative of something else, potentially the millions of dollars of dark money that have funded the recall effort? What do you make of this, uh, Michael? Well, I, I think certainly the, the marketing effort and the dollars played a big part. I also think it's a, um, it's a product of this perception fueled by um, well-funded police unions and the media that not only that uh, crime is rising in San Francisco, um, but that crime is rising because of the progressive policies of Chase Boudin, um, which I think is is demonstrably not true. I think data shows sort of uh, study after study shows that the, the progressive policies of a certain prosecutor don't actually impact um, the crime rate, but I think that message and the narrative that's been been fueled in very vivid terms by the media has had a huge impact. Well, okay, I think that's probably an unsatisfying message, though. If, if I'm a prosecutor, cr crime is up in San Francisco. Homicides have increased, burglaries have have increased, and you say, Marginally. well, what can the prosecutor do about it? If you're the prosecutor, you're going to get voted out. If you say, yeah, crime's up, but that's not really my problem. What can I do about it? 
Uh, go ahead, Alimi. Oh, I said marginally. I said marginally. We're looking at the at the percentages, but if you actually look at the numbers, crime had a very, very marginal increase. Homicides went up for like 11 to 15, things like that, right, if you actually look at the raw data. But I think a situation like this is only shocking if you feed into the idea that our issues with getting criminal justice reform is a Democrat versus Republican thing. And I've said before, and I've written tons of things on it, that it's not, right? The media is highly complicit in fueling propaganda and how we perceive these, you know, crime strikes. If you look at a place like New York City, which is also someplace that's touted as this progressive utopia, when we had historic bail reform and we saw it, you know, positively uh, change the rates at Rikers and change that the criminal system was uh, impacted, the first thing you saw was an immediate, immediate propaganda campaign from the Post and all of the media to, you know, manufacture this crime wave in order to roll back bail reform, which is what they did. So if you look at places, it never just stops at, you know, the progressive initiative. We get that, you get a progressive prosecutor, you get a progressive set of laws, and then you immediately have to spend time fighting and combating the media that pushes propaganda. And if you see a situation like Boudin, um, not only did he have to fight the media wave, but he also had to fight a pack where they were actually, you know, doning to try to get him out. And it's not as surprising when people are like, oh, you know, these are well-funded, these are Democrats and rich Democrats and people doing it too, not just Republicans. Although there is a Republican donor that gave like 900,000 of the $1.8 million, the pack that um, funded, funded this recall movement. So it is relevant, but I think uh, you have to look at the fact that there's an invested interest. It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, Democrats or Republicans being on two different allegiances. Like rich Democrats and rich Republicans and Republicans are not that, um, there's not this major divergence between what are their interests when it comes to propaganda and policing. So it's not that striking, uh, but I think it's just a reflection of people have to remember that it's a maintained effort. You don't just get the progressive prosecutor in. You don't just get the progressive laws. You have to spend time fighting, fighting, fighting the media who's going to push propaganda at every chance they get. And people are going to consume that because people, rightfully so, you know, you can't really blame the people that they blame. They rely on the media to give them unbiased reporting. If you give them data, you know, they look at numbers of percentage increase and you're telling them there's a crime wave, they believe you, you know, whereas regardless of whether or not that's actually what's happening on the ground or whether Boudin is doing anything different than what he promised to do or what we consider effective. So, yeah, well, can you talk about that a little bit, Michael? You know, there was this push a few years ago to have progressive prosecutors. There seemed to be an understanding that the kind of tough on crime activities of the 90s hadn't yielded results. Kamala Harris herself painted herself, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, as a progressive pop prosecutor to rise mm. to the top of the Democratic Party. And, and uh, you know, a former colleague of mine at The Intercept, Lee Fong, actually wrote about how she had a kind of tough-on-crime approach to herself to be DA of San Francisco back in the day, defeating a genuinely progressive prosecutor with imagery on her flyers of chalk outlines on the ground and bare-chested men with gang signs and all of this kind of thing. What is this flip that's going on? And, and why do people seem to not understand what the relationship between prosecutors and crime really is? Why do we why do we want progressive prosecutors in the first place? And you know, what do we hope to, to gain from them? How much control do they really have over crime rates and the like? Right. Well, I think what changed is we had a global pandemic and um, crime rates, a, a number of violent crimes in cities across America went up for reasons likely having nothing to do with progressive prosecutors, which is why it went up across the country, including in uh, districts where you have prosecutors that are, quote unquote, tough on crime. Mm. Um, and so if you think about it, Chase Boudin took office in January 2020 and then the pandemic hit and then homelessness uh, exploded and, and anxiety exploded and mental health issues 
rose. And, and all of a sudden we had um, rising crime rates, some rising crime rates in, in certain cities, in certain areas. And um, and at that point, we had a sort of knee jerk reaction to uh, like like Olayemi says, to fueled by uh, propaganda and fueled by the media to to pin that um, that crime rising crime rate on progressive prosecutors and, and Chase Bedouin became sort of the poster boy for that. Um, I, I think to, to, to the other part of your question, the reason why prosecutors like Chase Boudin took office in the in the first place is because there was a well justified uh, reaction to the idea that that um, we were incarcerating way too many people um, and and particularly people of color. And so Right. People like Chase Boudin and other progressive prosecutors across the country um, had an opening to take off to deal with something that people really wanted to deal with and should have wanted to deal with uh, uh, because mass incarceration is it was and is a gigantic problem. So. So some people are going to say, you know, you're incarcerating too many people and they're going to hear that and say, well, if people cause do do crimes, you got to punish them. Oftentimes that means jail. What does this mean? Right. You're just letting people out on the street. Well, of course, that's going to cause people to commit more crimes. How do you respond to, to folks who are thinking that right now? Oh, me. Oh, sure. Sure. Ole. Um, well, here's the thing, right? Chase Boudin was actually very focused on violent crime, and there's no indication that that wasn't his primary focus. If you look at what I think has been the largest complaint about him, and he's seen in San Francisco, and based on his his own his allegations have been that the major donor for his pack had asked him to, you know, sign an initiative basically to push the homeless uh, the homeless people out of visibility, and that seemed to be the largest complaint. People are that they're seeing more homelessness, and if you look at what the the DA's role in that, a prosecutor is there to prosecute, right? They're there to prosecute people, or if they, in the case of a progressive DA, you uh, work out of their way to prevent as much prosecution where they don't think it's going to be effective. In a case like homelessness, right, they're not waging war on homelessness. They're waging war on homeless people. The initiatives are that they don't want to see homeless people so much. So what is a prosecutor's role actually in that in terms of solving homelessness? The only thing they can do is or incarcerate them or prosecute them. That seems to be the angle that we're looking for. There's no other actual initiative the district attorney has there. And if you look at a place like New York City where we have the same thing, we have a very pro-carceral mayor that's uh, waging war on the homeless. They're not actually engaging in initiatives. It's not really about crime. The narrative isn't about crime here or the homeless people causing crime. It's about their visibility. So it really just speaks to this. It's not an effective means of addressing crime. It's not that he's not addressing crime. It's that he's not using the criminal system to hide away these social ills and things that people don't want to be confronted with the visibility of. You know, uh, going back uh, to a point you made, uh, putting it all on the pandemic, though, I think is frustrating because some of the some of the the way the pandemic was handled, the the policies, the shuttering of social services, the the all of that kind of thing. I mean, those were I guess they're not progressive prosecutors behind them, but those were choices made by policymakers, many of them Democratic in large cities, that I think have absolutely contributed to the fraying of our society and thus and thus rising crime. But you know, those were those were policies too. And look, I'm in in D.C. where I live, yeah, the homelessness has gotten or the visibility of the homeless has certainly gotten worse. There are more 
more tent cities now than at any point in which I've lived here previously. There, you know, not right. Not all cities are the same. Some cities, the crime problem is not as bad as it's presented. In other cities, it is quite worse. I was just looking at Philadelphia's homicide numbers are as high as they were in the 90s, a period of you know, the, the Philadelphia uh, period. So, look, I, I get if maybe it's not specific people's fault or that, you know, their policies are are, are being wrongly blamed. But the reality that things are, some things are getting worse in a lot of cities and that progressive solutions, even solutions I would like to see. I'm no fan of over-incarceration. I think a lot of people are in prison too long and and could be released with minimal uh, problem for society. But it doesn't get around the fact that people are scared. I don't think it's propaganda or all media spin to say that. And, and, and also just telling them their fears are wrong and you shouldn't feel that way is not a it's not a winning political message. It's, it's going to well, be demonstrated over and over again. Well, plot twist, Robbie, yeah. plot twist. I don't fundamentally disagree with you, right? I think it's a, it's an entire package. Like I've said, I think it's a mistake to pretend like democratic strongholds and progressive utopias uh, implementing progressive policies and then um, we're left with this result. The reality is in a lot of these places that are democratic strongholds, you are seeing the exact same initiatives that Republicans would would, would uh, uh, put in place, the exact same, same kind of policies that don't address homelessness, that don't address poverty, that don't address these different issues. But then, you know, you'll get one aspect of it, you get one progressive prosecutor, and when the whole picture doesn't change, it gets blamed on these progressive progressive policies, ra- policies rather than looking at all the other Democrats and legislators and people in place that are not working to create that same kind of vision. The reality is, if we have homelessness and we have the pandemic, right, it's not a mistake that, or an accident or a coincidence that after a pandemic where we had a lockdown, where people couldn't pay their rent, where people lost their jobs, where businesses closed down, you see a burst of people on the street. Now, if you see these legislators in these progressive cities refuse to put money into into homelessness, uh, refuse to put money into housing, refuse to put money in all these different areas to alleviate some of these social ills, then of course you're gonna be left, the prosecutor, the DA is gonna be left with all the, you know, the backlash and all of those consequences and there's only so much they could do within their resources. So I say, I don't I don't disagree with you. I, 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 I believe that Democrats are also not doing their part to address these actual ills, but it does become a problem when they don't get along with this progressive vision, right? They're not um, in concert with the DA's working to alleviate these different social concerns. And then when all these different issues continue to happen and, and, you know, they bloom to a head, then it's the DA's fault. The DA can't, there's only so much the DA could do if the city isn't giving money to homeless people, isn't providing adequate housing, isn't, you know, providing adequate adequate income, isn't providing mental health resources. And then the prosecutor's just doing their best to say, well, I know that incarceration doesn't actually help address or alleviate these things, so I'm not going to go that route, you know? Yeah, I think there's a a really essential conversation about the role that prosecuting crimes actually has to preventing the, the, the doing of the crime in the first place and people are not interrogating the relationship between the two. There seems to be this belief that if you just prosecute more people, you know, prosecutors don't have control over how many people commit crimes. Like the, the crimes are committed and then the second order question is how do you go about addressing it? Are there people yeah. who are you know, best benefited by going to prison versus going into some kind of rehabilitation program versus having their fundamental economic or housing need or whatever met. That is a conversation we should be having, but instead we're kind of all operating under this fiction that if, you know, the harsher penalties are inflicted upon people who commit crimes, fewer crimes will be committed and that relationship in terms of deterrence effect just hasn't been demonstrated in, in, in those ways. I want to give you a chance to respond to that, Michael, if you want. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. And I also think what rarely gets talked about when you're dealing with prosecutors that have a more progressive vision is the huge benefits to society um, from 
folks that do not get incarcerated. We we rarely talk yeah. about the people who um, don't go to jail, aren't spending time sitting in jail waiting for their cases to be tried. And instead, they are home taking care of their kids, working for their communities, paying taxes, um, being a role model for others in the community. And so, but those sorts of uh, uh, positive benefits that we get from not incarcerating people rarely get uh, featured in the press. They rarely get talked about by policymakers. Yes. Um, there is a huge societal benefit um, to be gained by not incarcerating people. And and one of, I think, the sort of real tragedies of um, of having Chase Boudin uh, removed from office is is there will be more people in, in San Francisco that go to jail. Um, and, and, you know, all of the sort of social costs that come with that um, and across the country to the extent there are prosecutors that take this message to be more carceral, uh, we will go right back into the, the, the problem that we were trying to alleviate in the first place, which is this knee-jerk reaction to incarcerate and a huge um, societal cost that goes with it. And it's ironic yeah. since you know Chase's own impetus to get into this field was his own family's incarceration story growing up um, with his father in jail. But before we go, Michael, uh, you started your own civil rights firm yesterday. Can you tell us a little bit about oh. it on our way out? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I started a uh, law firm with my partner, Ben White. Um, we are hoping to focus on civil rights, criminal defense, and commercial civil litigation, and um, hopefully address a lot of these problems that we're talking about. I, I spent seven years as a, as a public defender. I spent three years uh, leading a lawsuit against the white supremacists that um, that organized the Charlottesville rally in 2017. And I'm hoping to use that background along with my partner um, to to take on some of these issues. Um, going oh, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations, <laughs> Michael. That's beautiful. Yes, congratulations. And thank you to you both for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Well, coming up next, we'll discuss the fallout at The Washington Post following Dave Weigel's suspension. Its story is still going on. Stay with us for that. We've been living with COVID-19 for two years and counting, and still there's not a clear consensus on measures to curb the spread of the virus, especially when it comes to mask mandates. California had some of the strictest masking requirements, and Alameda County in the Bay Area just reinstated indoor masking. My next guest lives in L.A. County, and in his latest newsletter, he discusses uh, how to end mask mandates once and for all. Joining me now is the author of that piece, Richard Hanania, author of the Hanania Newsletter and president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Richard, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ravi. So what is your strategy uh, to erode the kind of mask mandates that we see returning in various places? I know you, like myself, really don't like wearing them, don't want to wear them. Uh, and you have come up with an idea that I, I was waiting for it to be proposed. Uh, talk about what that is, you know, how a, a actually disability law and, and the kind of requirements in the law for people who have disabilities could actually be used for people who don't want to wear masks anymore. 
Yeah, so under the American with Disabilities Act, if you're an employee or you're a customer and you have a disability, uh, the uh, businesses basically have to make a reasonable accommodation for you. Now, what's a disability and what's a reasonable accommodation? That's what courts and lawyers and judges and, and regulators are for. Me personally, I've spent, um, I've spent the last two years you know, at least since, you know, at least for one year since vaccines were became available, I thought the mask mandates were ridiculous, basically trying to uh, not comply with the LA County mask mandate. Uh, this means, you know, going to certain stores and not others. Uh, this means, you know, avoiding, uh, you know, certain uh, certain kinds of, uh, even like the dentist, I've tried to go less often. I mean, so there, there's all these things that I'm doing. And by any measure, you could say that this is a form of disability. You could say it's uh, it's autism, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's some kind of inability to, function, it's anxiety. I mean, we see these things, we see uh, basically a disability under American with Disabilities Act is whatever a doctor is willing uh, to attest to. Uh, so basically, if you want to end the mask mandates, all you really need is at most a doctor's note, a doctor to say, look, this disturbs you, put some medical lab label on it, call it ADHD, call it anxiety, call it whatever. And you should be basically, you should be uh, free and clear. The disabilities laws are even stronger than that would apply, actually, because uh, you don't really need the doctor's note most of your time, according to uh, DOJ guidance. If you say you have a uh, disability and a business can uh, reasonably accommodate you, um, and specifically, you know, they've, they've cited like grocery stores as something that where you're in and out very uh, quickly, um, you know, they, they shouldn't ask for any kind of documentation uh, or anything like that. Uh, so for schools or something like that, for kids, you might need a doctor's note. But saying just I have a condition, that should work in most places. And once a few people start not complying and it sort of becomes normalized they give up on enforcement this is what happened with uh, uh like therapy animals here in california they used to not allow dogs into uh, restaurants and stores uh a few enough people um were able to get a prescription for anxiety or disorders or whatever whatever they had and eventually they just gave up on enforcing uh the no pets rule so i think something easily could happen with mask mandates people just have to take the initial step well right and i a lot of people could probably claim you know reasonably i mean i i feel this way that having to communicate with people while we're wearing masks is very difficult. I don't understand people very well uh, when they're when I'm wearing a mask and when they're wearing a mask. I don't you know, I don't know what kind of what kind of issue that is. I did my hard of hearing. I you know, have to rely on social cues to kind of understand people. Um, so like it's legitimate. I, I, I'm not I am not advocating. Maybe you are advocating actual dishonesty about it. But but, you know, I, I don't think people should should uh, try to get their doctors to you know make up things, but as you point out in the newsletter, right, the therapy animal, that kind of stuff, people have already gone to incredible lengths to kind of force society to to you know play ball with yeah I, you know I want I need to bring this animal with me everywhere I need to do this thing I need to do that thing so wh why why could it not be extended to the masking conversation? Yeah, I don't think dishonesty is, um, you know, is necessary here or anything like that. I mean, the, you know, disability is subjective. It's always expanding. I mean, there's court cases. Is alcoholic, you know, can you fire an alcoholic if he drinks on the job? I mean, these things are always being litigated. Um, I think that people who dislike masks, they tend not to come from the demographic who doesn't like to think about themselves as having a medical problem. I'm like this. I've been really, really bothered for masks for the last year or two. I don't like to think in terms of this, this gives me anxiety. I need to go to a doctor or something like that. I just think in terms of this is a bad thing that I really, really hate. But 
that's good enough for, uh, under the American with Disabilities Act. If it bothers you enough, it's a disability. And take advantage of the law here, because this is this is going to go on forever otherwise. I thought after Omicron, maybe we were finally done. Um, but look, in California, we can't even get through the summer without masking. So, so forget about winter. Forget about an unmasked Christmas for the rest of our lives. I mean, this can't go on. And I think this is the quickest way to do something about it. Yeah. But another problem, though, we'd encounter is are there going to be doctors, you know, actually willing to, you know, write write a note or say, yeah, th this person uh, has anxiety or has a communications disability. You can't wear a mask. You have to the, the medical community seems pretty obviously you can find exceptions everywhere that they don't speak with one unanimous. It's not just like Dr. Fauci speaks on behalf of the entire community or something. But there is a lot of buy in to the idea that the covid mandates and the restrictions are important among the medical community more generally, given, you know, how team based we are They're Just they ended up on Team Blue. So that that could be an issue. Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, but look, I mean, doctors advertise their services. There's doctors who are known for being more friendly towards this or that. I mean, I see doctors all the time on TV r rallying against COVID restrictions. I always think, you know, stop going on TV, just go back and start writing all your uh, patients' prescriptions. So I, I think, you know, you're right that I think this is why this hasn't happened uh, so far. It's because the medical community, you know, they'll, they'll give you an anxiety edible or whatever. But yeah, they're on Team Blue and they dislike the idea of uh, helping Trump supporters do something they think is unreasonable, but it doesn't take many. And I think, you know, doctors, you know, doctors who uh, see the see the craziness of permanent masking, uh, I think they could you know, for, potentially form a business doing this. Yeah, it seemed like uh, a few weeks ago when there was a kind of rapid end to the mask mandates in most places, in many schools, in many city based mask mandates here in D.C., ours finally went away from the third and better be final time. Uh, it January, February, uh, March, this was happening. It seemed like it was partly because Democrats had made, done some internal polling or realized that you know, perpetually masking people was, people had enough of it and it was going to make them unpopular. Uh, and I, I really, I thought that surely is going to be the end of it if they think they're going to be doomed because of it. But now we are seeing some, some creeping back mass mandates in, in places in California, college campuses still, some of them, I think, you know, masking people um, or encouraging it during sports activities, things of, of that nature. Um, are, are the Democrats just, have they just, are they just open to paying this political price, I suppose, and, and, and will keep doing this because they can't tell the kinds of epidemiologists or the medical, the, the people who recommend this that, sorry, it's enough. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, the polling is very strange because you look at just poll results and people are very pro-COVID restrictions. But then when you look at you know how Republicans are doing in elections, they seem to indicate that people dislike um, the COVID restrictions. Um, and I think in California on the West Coast, there's, there seems to be more support for them than elsewhere. The Democrats, did, uh, Gavin Newsom, didn't seem to be hurt during the uh, uh, recall. Also, I mean, in L.A. County here, and it's like this in a lot of places, basically the health commissioner is, is the sovereign. I mean, the uh, LA Board of Supervisors, you know, they, they could overrule her, uh, but they generally don't. Um, so they've, you know, they've given this power to this uh, one public health official, and that takes it out of the hands of people too. I mean, I, so I don't, I don't know, you know, it might be just regional. Um, you know, California's just might be more accepting of mask mandates, but I mean, the rest of us who have to live here, you know, would like the option to go back to a normal life. Indeed. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Robbie. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.
With only seven weeks remaining until August recess, Senate Democrats are scrambling to vote on and pass major antitrust legislation before the midterms. The American Innovation and Choice Online Act would stop big tech companies like Amazon from favoring their own services and products on their platforms. Well, according to Bloomberg News, undecided lawmakers are facing nearly relentless lobbying pushes from both sides of the aisle in the lead up to voting. The bill's advocates say the legislation is necessary to promote competition, while big tech argues it would stifle platforms' abilities to deliver consumer-favorited services like Amazon Prime and Google Maps. Bloomberg reports that Apple, Amazon, Google, and Meta spend $16.7 million on lobbying in the first quarter of 2022, with all four companies identifying this bill as their top priority. Joining us now to weigh in is Evan Greer. She is a journalist and director of Fight for the Future. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us more about this bill and why its supporters uh, think it's so necessary. Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that this bill is actually, these two bills really are actually about more than just competition. This is about the future of technology and whether it's built on sort of walled gardens where a very small handful of monopolistic companies more or less control everything that happens online, or whether it's built on openness, uh, where people have meaningful choices and can find online platforms and services that have content moderation and privacy practices that fit their needs. So really, this isn't just about kind of economics. It's about the future of technology and whether it's a force for good and empowerment or a force for tyranny and greed. As important as antitrust is, Evan, I sometimes feel like it is opaque to much of the public. I, I wonder if you can help us understand, you know, why is it such a problem for a company like Amazon with its size and its reach to favor its own services and products on their own platform? There are people who are going to hear that and say, oh, well, of course you should do that. It's a business. It's profit motive. This is, this is how the world works. Why is it a problem? How does it affect the average American consumer? Yeah, corporate monopolies have a huge impact on people's everyday lives. Obviously, the infant formula shortage is one of the clearest examples of that playing out right now. But when you bring that into the tech space, what you start to see is when there's no competition, that's why everyone hates these big tech platforms, because they don't have to compete in a meaningful way. So they don't have to improve their services. What we see is a company like Amazon basically takes the mountain of data that they have about what's selling. They use that to effectively copy popular products, make a cheaper version of them in often you know, sweatshop conditions in warehouses, et cetera, and then promote that cheaper version on their platform. And that's impossible for smaller businesses to compete with. Um, you take that over to a company like Facebook, you see what they do is if a new app comes along, something that's popular, rather than compete with it, they're either going to try to buy it or they're simply going to copy, copy that new service and then promote it on their existing dominant platforms and basically put their competitors out of business. That's why we're in the situation we're in now where a tiny handful of essentially five companies have such a dominant role over our online platforms and marketplaces. But I guess the problem is... I, I struggle to see how this has been super bad for the consumer, right? The basic, uh, the basis of antitrust law being uh, we need to fight monopolies because if there's monopolies, then they can raise the price of things. It's bad for the consumer. There's no really philosophically, right, that 
companies have to be nice to their competitors, have to be fair. Obviously, it's kind of ridiculous on some level. Of course, they want to crush and destroy their their competitors. Uh, you know, I look at a, a product like Amazon, uh, one of the you know one of the most beloved services to have ever existed in human history, relied upon by by millions, if not billions, of people. Uh, one of the most popular companies there are, one of the most popular institutions in America. And I, I I wonder, I worry, like why are we tinkering from this? Why are we saying there have to be changes made, enforced by the government? It's really bad or something for some reason. I don't know that that's most people's experience using Amazon. Well, that's certainly what Amazon's army of lobbyists is out there saying right now. But I think if you look at actual impact on communities and the impact that Amazon has had, particularly on small businesses, small hardware stores, retail stores in towns and cities across the country, you see that it's actually having a profound impact on people's daily lives. It's putting people out of jobs. It's uh, harming kind of local economies and making it impossible for those companies to compete. So there's a significant cost that we as a society pay for that one click and something shows up at your door. Um, but it's also really important to recognize that um, the things that Amazon has been claiming about these bills are just simply false. Uh, all the experts that have looked at this, and including Amazon themselves, have actually admitted that these bills aren't going to prevent things like Amazon Prime. All they're going to do is crack down on companies kind of abusing their monopoly power in order to edge out uh, more choices for consumers. If you want more choices online, if you want more things like Amazon that are useful to you, but uh, you know more options for them, then you want these bills to pass. I'd also quickly say it's important that we don't leave Apple out of this conversation. I think they often get sort of the pass uh, when we're talking about big tech giants. Um, but for me, the second bill we're talking about here, the Open App Markets Act, is actually also incredibly foundational because it would crack down on Apple's restricting of what software you can run on devices that you own. And that's a core issue for freedom of expression and uh, uh, human rights around the world. We know, for example, Fight for the Future released a report with a China-based human rights organization showing that LGBTQ-related apps have been censored in dozens of countries around the world simply by leveraging the gatekeeper power of Apple's app store monopoly. So again, this isn't just about competition. These are sort of fundamental issues around internet freedom and whether the future of the internet is going to be this vision that we've always had of a democratized space where anyone can have a voice and anyone can start a project or a business and compete on a level playing field, or we're going to continue going down the path we're on now, which is toward this kind of monopolistic surveillance capitalist hellscape um, that I think no one wants, uh, regardless of where they sit on the political spectrum. I'm so glad you raised that speech issue, Evan. It's one that gets overlooked too often in these conversations about infringements on the First Amendment. I also want to make an ideological uh, point about something you said earlier, Robbie. You asked your question about the benefit to consumers here. And this is a fairly new thing that's emerged here. It used to be that we thought of consumers and workers as the same people. We were making products in America. People in America earned good salaries making those products and they could go out and buy other products from other stores. Now, increasingly, we're having these bifurcated camps where people are not as able to buy goods because wages aren't keeping up with inflation and the cost of living in the United States. And that's why we're getting stories now about how Target can't offload its 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 clothing's clothing and other goods because we have pretended like the same people who are making things in America aren't the same people who are buying things in America. Um, and there's also this other point about what Amazon does, and correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, is that there sometimes is a 
temporary deflation in the price of products to compete. And then once the original owner of the product that has been uh, copied goes out of business, they then are able to raise prices later. So although there might be an initial benefit, a short-term benefit to consumers, ultimately it raises prices across the board. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I think, again, that just points out that monopolies are never good for consumers. You don't have to be an antitrust lawyer wonk expert to understand that when companies don't have to compete, they have less of an incentive to provide good, you know, fair prices. They have less of an incentive to innovate and make their services better. Um, so it's a basic concept, really. Monopolies are not good for consumers. And that's why we have a long history of antitrust law and enforcement in this country, because, uh, you know, folks have recognized that harm of monopoly power. Um, and your point about Amazon is well taken. And in fact, Amazon sellers, there was a great CNBC story the other day about how Amazon CEO was really trying to rally uh, folks who were selling on Amazon to oppose these bills. Um, and they basically uh, rebelled and were like, this mm. is ridiculous. We want um, these types of restrictions. We want um, the government to crack down on Amazon's self-dealing and monopoly power because that allows us as online sellers to compete on a more level playing field. So again, I think you know when, when you really start to unpack them, um, it's hard to call what big tech lobbyists are saying about these bills anything other than lies. They're not even stretches or misdirection. They're straight up lying about what these bills do and don't do because they're getting desperate because we're getting incredibly close to getting these bills over the finish line. They're bipartisan. They've moved out of committee. Mm. Um, they have the overwhelming support of people from across, across the political spectrum. It's like the one thing that folks in Washington can agree on is that companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google have too much power uh, and we need to crack down on that power and put it back uh, into a more democratized type of internet, the one that I think everyone really wants. I usually find agreement among our legislators more concerning than dissent. But uh, Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I understand that a lot of bad bills out there. These are some good bills. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. After multiple reports of mounting frustration at the White House over President Biden's increasingly low approval ratings, the Commander-in-Chief traveled to Los Angeles yesterday for the first in-person late-night talk show appearance of his presidency, this time on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Biden, however, quickly found himself in the hot seat with a barrage of questions on gun control, inflation, the failure of Build Back Better, etc. Mm, some reporting. <laughs> the president again confirmed he would not use executive orders to deliver gun control. Let's watch. You an executive order. Trump passed those out like Halloween candy. Yes, sir. It, well, it, I did. Isn't that something that could happen? Well, I, I, I have issued executive orders within the power of the presidency to be able to deal with these, everything having to do with guns, gun ownership, whether or not you have to have a waiting, all, all the things that are within my power. But what I don't want to do, and I'm not being facetious, I don't want to emulate Trump's abuse of the Constitution and the constitutional authority. And, and so... And I mean that for sure, because I often get asked, look, the Republicans don't play it square. Why do you play it square? Yeah. Well, well, guess what? If we do the same thing they do, our democracy will literally be in jeopardy. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm not a joke. And I, I understand their argument, but also it's like you're playing Monopoly with somebody who, you know, won't pass go and won't follow any of the rules. And how do you ever make any progress if they're not following the rules? Well, you've got to send them to jail, uh, you know. <laughs> I'd like to live. That's a good comeback. <laughs> I'd like to live in this world Joe Biden lives in, where democracy isn't already a shambles. I mean, he—he's. I think Jimmy Kimmel is right here. Democrats spend all their time in office 
making arguments to their own base about why they don't have power to do what's clearly in their authority. And Republicans understand that their job, their, what their mandate is, is to work within the powers that they've been given to maximize what they've promised to their base. And that's why we get this ratcheting right effect over the course of the years. The country is not more to the right. The left hasn't gone crazy and gone left. We have both parties that are filled with elites that have abandoned the basic promises to the social safety net and the social contract that were supposed to be the foundation of the American dream. Wages are down even though productivity is up. Uh, people can't afford the basic cost of living. The education price is sky high. People can't afford to put gas in their car. And Joe Biden is acting like, well, it's okay for me to sit around and tinker around the edges because the impropriety of doing more would just be a hashtag bad look. And that's why people don't have any confidence in the Democratic Party anymore. Well, but by the same token, I mean, you got to, they, they don't have a majority. They don't, for, they don't even have all. We're talking about executive orders. Their, well, well we're right. Talking, we're talking about executive orders. No, right. So if he wants to get these things done, right, he needs to do it with the stroke of a pen, which then is going to be subject to, uh, to scrutiny from the courts okay. uh, and so on, which, right, I know you want. But I'm saying if it was so popular and so great and everyone wants it so much, maybe Democrats would be able to assemble a majority coalition that wants those things, which they can't. It doesn't matter. We spent four years under Donald Trump, much of which he did not have a, uni he did not have a united government, acting like the sky was falling and it was going to be the end of the world because he passed a whole host of items via executive order. And Democrats at that time, the rhetoric was that he was able to do with the stroke of his pen enough to ruin democracy. That was the, the kind of language that they used. Now, the whole conversation is about, well, it's too easy to undo. Well, if it's so easy to undo, why were you so pressed when it was Joe, when it was Donald Trump doing it? And why don't you have any confidence that historically, oftentimes, people get used to the status quo and there isn't this rush to undo executive orders that people anticipate? Regardless, you are facing a really hard midterm election season and at least demonstrating your willingness to go to bat for the people and also drawing contrast between what the people want and what Republicans are obstructing saying I was forced to do an executive order because they wouldn't agree to this simple lowball thing is exactly how you in, enliven and energize your base not sitting here on national TV making excuse after excuse after excuse while you're the most powerful man in the world but you can't do anything at all I, mean, I don't know every time there's one president uh, the more executive orders they do the more they open the door to the next person to even further grow the power of the executive well, so the next conservative shouldn't use so many executive orders well, that's I, not I, on I, Joe Biden I, sure and neither should the previous one I mean Bush did this and then there was an expansion under Obama and then there was an expansion under Trump and Biden, actually, maybe to his credit, I think, and is one to say, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah, well, I was just trying to look up a quick um, uh, list of, of how these executive orders have gone over time and who has used them more or who, is, who has used them less. It hasn't been linear, is what I recall. Um, let's see here. Uh, this, some of these charts, I'm sorry, they stop before we get to, um, they stop before we get to Joe Biden. But the point of the matter is, you cannot expect people to have faith in your presidency if you're willing to unilaterally disarm. Unilaterally disarm. John Adams only had one executive order, according to this. That's my guy. That's my I, guy. He probably had a much more cooperative They look government. pretty, uh, they look like they dramatically increase over time, basically, looking down this, this list. Um, T.R., Woodrow Wilson. But Major, in, 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 in contemporary history. FDR, of course. Well, 
and he got some things done. I like FDR. to spend most of my time complaining F about FDR. FDR with his executive Wilson. orders got a lot of things done and remains the most Wilson's executive hour executive history. orders putting black people probably back and resegregating the so, federal service. So popular he was in fact that they had to change the rules about how many times you were allowed to be president with all of those executive orders. So uh, that demonstrates that people just want to see that presidents can get things done. I don't know about that. The president also appeared to hit back at reports describing tension in the White House, telling Kimmel he has, quote, never been more optimistic. I've Sorry. never been more optimistic in my life, so I'll tell you why. I, why are you so optimistic? No, it I, makes no sense. No, it does. <laughs> There's a lot of major things we've done. But what we haven't done is we haven't been able to communicate it in a way that is... Uh, um, let me say it another way. Well, see, that's kind of perfect. Yeah, well, we haven't been able to communicate But it look how way. the press has changed. Mm -hmm. Look how the press has changed. It has changed. Oh, listen, it's, I, it's, I get it. I know you, get, you overstand it. Yeah. You don't just understand it. You overstand it. <laughs> but here's the deal. One of the things is that it's very difficult now to have a... Um, even with, with notable exceptions, even the really good reporters, they have to get the number of clicks on, on, the, on nightly news. Mm -hmm. So instead of asking a question, anyway, it just everything gets, gets sensationalized. It's too much sensationalism in among journalists. That's the real problem in this country, don't you think, Brianna? I mean, look, he's obviously <laughs> not wrong. There is a perverse the incentive that's, that's created by these algorithms. And I would note that they have gotten worse because of algorithmic publishing choices that have been made by some of these companies in recent years, which we have discussed on this show. But I think I'm increasingly believing that the problem is a little bit deeper than that. And part of why there is this political balkanization and people are pivoting away from mainstream news to finding individuals who they trust um, to, to filter their news through, right? Whether it's you have the people on your Twitter feed that are putting the articles in your feed, whether you go to a specific commentator like Joe Rogan or Russell Brand or whomever to get your news, it's because that is the best way people feel like they can have some sense of community and trust. It's about the individual, not about the idea that there's some like Glenn Kessler fact-checking machine behind anything. And that's because there's been an erosion of public trust. And the government and the President of the United States plays some role in that for him. So for him to abdicate all of that responsibility and put it on the media instead of asking this deeper question about how we no longer have these institutions that create a sense of American community, be it the media or be it church or be it these other places that used to exist in and the you past. Just, and, and you can't just say everything's great and the media is making it sound bad for clicks and for sensational. That has been true, uh, you know, throughout history. There's a lot of examples. Local media is always making crime seem worse than it is, and it is getting worse in some places, I would argue, but throughout the 90s, aughts, etc., there's all terrible, like, local, if it leads it leads kind of stuff but look you can't say everything's great and the media is blowing it out of proportion right inflation is very high people are struggling to feed their families they don't have baby formula for their kids there's there's a war going on in that we're you know partly funding or contributing to there's there's uh education costs are out of control medical costs are out of control uh people are angry with each other we're in the, still in the grips of a pandemic we're kind of coming to the end of it but we're not totally prepared for the next one it it's it's bad times, so you can't, like, the media did not make that up. I don't like the way they cover it. I don't like yeah. the sensationalism either. But we're not living in these wonderful, you know, magic, happy land times, and the media is lying to you about that. I think it's getting the solutions wrong. It's playing for one team or the other. Uh, but it's not the central fact that a lot of things have gone wrong. And 
you can blame, you don't have to blame Biden for that, but you, can, you, can, you could think what he's doing is perfectly adequate or you could think it's not nearly adequate at all, but things are not like great. It's just Well, I also not. think your point about uh, local media is important because part of what has eroded the public trust is that folks did used to be able to rely on their public uh, their, sorry, their local newspapers. Yeah. And with the funding models that have changed, the advertising models, the, the influence of these tech companies, so many local papers have gone the way of the dinosaur. And so no one has a local reporter that's covering beat news that isn't as partisan and divided. They're just a local from the town who's invested in the interest in a very small population. And that has contributed enormously because now everyone's viewing the same top-down, bifurcated, trickle-down news system. And if Joe Biden wanted to address that issue instead of just you know casting aspersions by increasing funding to those kinds of things and talking about other ways to support local news and local media, I would really love to hear that conversation and be more productive. I yeah, I, I hear you. I think traditional news are the news that preceded the kind of the social media environment that everything national that we're living through now. I, I'm not sure. We look. We might look at it with you know rose-tinged lenses because this seems crazy and insane, and everybody screaming at each other all the time. But I, I think I suspect there were a lot of ways in which even that news regime was very inadequate or was just manufacturing some kind of uh, imaginary consensus on policy on some very bad policies. Policy. We're talking about local issues, garbage pickups, street holes. You know, people have things in their lives that they care about, but it's very easy to distract them. So that they think the most important issue in the world is a, a documentary about what is a woman instead of why it is that their municipality isn't able to deliver on the very basic needs of people in the community, garbage pickup, et cetera. So I do think that's a, a significant issue. Um, and we will be talking about some of those bedrock issues more. Like we'll also be talking this. about what a woman <laughs> is maybe at some point. Uh, all right. <laughs> Felicia Sanmez has been relentless on Twitter this week following the suspension of her Washington Post colleague, Dave Weigel. Now, for those who haven't been following this saga closely, you have no idea what you're missing. It's glorious. Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel was suspended for a month, an entire month, with no pay for retweeting a joke tweet that was described as sexist by some. Then Felicia called, called it out, uh, called it to the Post's attention. Her coworker Lisa Rain has now since asked her to please stop the online attacks against other members of the newsroom that are unfolding in public. After the executive editor at the Post, Sally Busby, sent a memo to staff reiterating the paper's values against racist or sexist behavior, Brianna Muir replied to all and said, does our company social media policy not apply to Lisa Rain for telling Felicia Sanmez to stop on Twitter? In all honesty, her comment doesn't really sound collegial to me. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. CNN's Oliver Darcy added that reporters are getting frustrated with the infighting because their own sources are asking about the drama unfolding inside the Washington Post. And we are on day like seven of this. <laughs> like, it's and, been all week. Again, as I said last time we talked about this, I know Dave Weigel. I'm friendly with Dave Weigel. And uh, I have a I mean, I don't have any sort of relationship with Felicia Sanmez, but she's no fan of the work we do at Reason. Uh, we've had, she, we criticized her, uh, her, her Me Too story. Um, but it's still going, she's still, after very clear instructions, the Washington Post uh, editor said, you know, look, people, if you have problems, we discuss them internally. We don't tolerate sexism. We have punished Dave Weigel. And Disproportionately, yet, I would argue. Very aggressively. And yet she is still going on these tweet threads 
describing the, the inadequacies of the workplace environment, which actually prompted this colleague, Lisa Rain, to just respond, please stop. Please stop. Uh. Yes, I, I said this last time. I'll say it again. To the extent that there was sympathy for her position and that people agreed that it was a race, a, a sexist joke, rather, there can be no conversation about the quality of the joke now or what this means about Dave Weigel as a person or what his deep-seated beliefs are. All of that pales in comparison to this vendetta that's now been waged on Twitter for the last few days. It's ridiculous. And I really wish these people would understand that they're getting in their own way because it's kind of like symbolic of the way that these fights unfold in the broader popular sphere all the time. But a part of this conversation that we haven't really nailed down on is the idea that these newsrooms really want you to have a public presence on Twitter. They encourage you to have a public persona because they know what helps the traffic on their websites and creating little media the celebrities. Less and less, but yes. Creating little media celebrities out of their star reporters benefits the paper up and until this private sphere, which is ultimately a private sphere with you operating on these websites, crosses cr crosses and commingles with the with the with the employment sphere, and so they they are basically setting up the conditions for reporters increasingly getting caught into these morasses where it's not really clear if something is an internal dispute or an external dispute, which is why all of this. All of the interactions between coworkers, at the very least, that are happening, I would argue, should be happening offline. One hundred percent, like at any other workplace. There is no workplace, no functional, healthy workplace where coworkers are allowed to blast each other on social media. It's just, it's not something done. It is it's crazy to think that this is the right way to. I mean, to be like an adult who has gone through college, who has who has entered the workforce, to is trying to be a productive human being, and to think this is the right place to settle your disputes. You, it's it's not. It's just not done. I. I it, you would at any other company, you would fire someone who did this, I'm especially not, yeah. after they've persisted, after you've made it clear that this is not a, that they can't do this. Right. I, I'm not telling anybody to work in a corporate environment. <laughs> I'm not. I very rarely say anything even remotely positive about my experience working in corporate law. But I have to say that as I've moved through other kind of spaces, political spaces, media spaces, I am constantly shocked by the low threshold of professionalism in journalism that is allowed in other kinds of spaces journalism being the very worst because people are younger um, you know not the, well, not the women in question here not the people in question here but generally speaking there there does tend to be a younger cohort that maybe hasn't spent as much time in grad school or in other kinds of early training or whatever Whatever the cause, I just don't understand why people don't even think it reflects negatively on them and their own personal brand as they're engaging in these very public tactics. Well, I feel like they must have been rewarded for this kind of behavior previously, often in some of these elite, you know, liberal arts circles. I'm not going to, I'm trying not to paint with too broad a brush, but there's a kind of activism around being a victim and offended by everything that gives you a certain kind of attention and power and a lot of administrators caving to those sorts of people. I, there's probably a lot of getting your way every time you do this kind of thing that leaves you woefully unprepared for a professional environment where you don't do this. Okay, you well, wait, but this. we also have, I'm sorry, we also have conservatives like Ilya Shapiro very performatively quitting his job and then painting himself as a cancel culture warrior when he has made the choice that he is able to make a very privileged choice to quit a very prestigious law job at Georgetown University and then go on the circuit talking about how he was pushed out. I mean, you can 
think that he got undue criticism, and I think that's fair to, to say that some people were reading his tweet in bad faith. But he also, here on this show, I would argue, failed to really articulate a rationale for why he thought that his Supreme Court choice was objectively the best one. And people need to be able to stick to their guns and defend their positions but in any context. Was, well, but the our, our dispute is he was whether, defending that he, he, he said it was a bad tweet. So yes, I don't, saying he said the wording of the tweet was bad. But it's not about the wording. It's what the wording means, substantively. And words have meaning. You can't sit here as a, a law professor and pretend that the words that you use, you have to be able to demonstrate an ability to understand why people thought that you were wrong. And to say, you know what, I shouldn't have said objectively because that carved out the idea that there could be an objectively highest qualified black woman in the land. That's what his tweet foreclosed. And I was just hoping that he said that and I would have accepted that and moved on. Unfortunately, I didn't have it. But the point is that everybody This is a segment from Twitter. two days ago, by the way. If you didn't see it, you should check it you out. You should check it out. It's my radar from two days the, ago. The only reason I bring it up is, that beca is because people, I think, behave in ways that are different from how we all behaved historically because we know we can cultivate a certain kind of audience and play to that audience on Twitter and social media more broadly. A world where you're sitting next to a colleague that you have to see every day and you would choose to try to publicly humiliate them instead of talk to them only enters to your benefit if you think you can get a Greek course agreeing with you out in the public sphere. In real life, doing something like that would make your, your water cooler life miserable right. for the what is, it, is, is, is our friendship and loyalty totally dead? Because yes. now it's emerged that Dave uh, defended her when she took heat for bringing up uh, Kobe Bryant's sexual assault allegation yeah. right in the wake of his death. Yeah. Uh, and he defended her there, and just you'd think that would have bought a little bit of goodwill, but no. It's it's really bizarre, and I gotta say, be good to people who are good to you. I does, mean, be or just be make, a little, a little, be better than this. It, this it is does, scorched it make earth. Women look good in the context of a tweet that was making fun of women's behavior. No, no, it does not. I will let you say that, not me. Uh, San Mez's tirade against her peers has drawn the attention of the View. Let's watch. Well, you know what? Yeah, then oh let's boy. be the example we hope to see in the world. Because right now, I mess up. I hope people have grace when I mess up. And it depends on how big you mess up. He retweeted a joke that was inappropriate. He was called out. He deleted yeah. it. He apologized. She is still going. And if he was. She is still tweeting. And he about was this. the. His. He was one of the people that supported her when she tweeted about Kobe uh, Bryant's. Um, rape allegations. So I was very surprised that she continued and continued. She's still going right continued. now. Son. She's still going. And there's a social <laughs> right now. and there is a social media really? policy. Yeah. yeah. So she I sounds was, a little nervous. Well, I was a little surprised <laughs> that even after the editor in chief yeah, said, "Let's handle this internally," she continued arguing on Twitter. I mean, Twitter is not the real world. They're like 22% of the United States is on Twitter, and of those, that 22% even fewer are active. I don't know why she is so intent on fighting sexism and discrimination and harassment on Twitter. online. Mm -hmm. Why not write an article for the Washington Post? Which yeah, is where yeah. Employed. That was a good segment. Yeah. They, they really handled that one pretty well. <laughs> when you've lost the view, <laughs> yeah. you've lost the ladies of the view, you've lost the thread. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Look, right, it's the kind of performative Twitter behavior that is rewarding, but it is increasingly not even rewarding. I, I've said this on the show before that uh, engagement on Twitter seems to be down. Or it it mm -hmm. not, doesn't drive traffic to articles or videos nearly as much anymore. Um, so I'm, I, now I'm just having like a constantly negative experience on Twitter. And like, but the upside used to be you would get people reading your articles 
Now it's just the negative experience without much upside. So I don't know what, no, what I'm like, doing. Are you sure you want to retweet this? Do you want to read it before you retweet it? Oh, I and hate it's like, that. No, I wrote it. I wrote it. <laughs> I, I have, I have read it. I wrote it. I, I don't need to do that. So I, I do find myself myself spending less and less time on Twitter. But uh, I do too. Maybe it's um. Maybe it's the kind of the, the poison pill. It's 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 built into the experience to save us all from. It's like what they, the left says about capitalism that it, it's it's. It sows the seeds of its own destruction. You don't it's have to do anything to break right, it down. Right, it's contradictions. Uh, well, we're, we're still kind of waiting for <laughs> Twitter, it. Twitter, capitalism, let's see if Elon Musk saves it all. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to find out. Tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky will have a great show for you as always. And then there will be a guest host uh, in for me beginning of the next week. So treat her well. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, that's me. We are available now anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yes, check that out, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.